Did I just screw something up that's important? Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined uh, as usual by, by Sarah Cliff and, and Ezra Klein. Although, tragically, uh, we will not probably have another episode with, with the three of us together for, for a while. It's going to become not that usual. <laughs> it's going to become unusual. Unusual. Unusual, unusual weeds are, are coming, and uh, wh- why? So I'm going on book leave uh, starting in a couple days and going through early June. I'm going to be writing a book. Uh, I think listeners will not be shocked to hear about political polarization and why American politics is so great these days. Whoa. Uh, but while I've been doing that, I'm going to be going to keep going with my interview podcast, but I'm going to vacate my chair on the weeds for, for 10 weeks and, and, and let other weedsers come in and talk policy and politics in America. Obviously, Sarah and I have worked out a, a detailed plan for how to handle it. <laughs> That's yes. what I've heard. <laughs> to well be determined prepared. next week. Uh... And then Ezra will come back from book leave right at the time I am expected to be having a baby. So I will be spending the summer on maternity leave. Um, so I will be gone from the weeds for a few months this summer. I promise you all plenty of content about the healthcare system as experienced through <laughs> having a child. But the good news is um, we will also have more weedsters in here. And we have been doing a lot of work to get the next season of The Impact, my other podcast, ready for the fall. So much more podcasting to come in the future, even if the weeds crew is separated for and a little eventually while. Eventually a roundtable discussion of Vox Babies. It's gonna yes. it's gonna come into the studio. I hope life well, transitions on the weeds. We'll have Jose and my future child um, yeah. just host an episode. Jose's gotten old enough that he he has some takes now, and it's it's important to know. Well, I'm gonna miss getting to do this with you all every week, and I'm excited for the future when we get to do it every week again. But it's why for our our, our last hurrah episode for a little while, we have planned a really amazing, excellent, super weedsy episode. Blockbuster. So we're going to start by looking at a huge new paper, really, really, really important new paper on racial mobility in America. And then we're going to talk about whether or not it is time to get off of Facebook. Unless, of course, you're in the Weeds Facebook group, in which case... Facebook is amazing. Due to network effects, it's never time to get off Facebook. And, and right there, in, in that little intro, you saw the difficulty of this conversation. But let's begin with the new paper. Uh, so this came out about a week ago now. Uh, the New York Times gave it an unbelievably cool, splashy visualization, which you know really sent it rocketing in the stratosphere. But this is a paper in the lineage of the various Raj Chetty papers about economic opportunity in America. This one's by Raj Chetty, Nathaniel Hendren, Maggie Jones, and Sonia Porter. And what they're looking for, using their sort of traditional models of, of, of linking tax data to life outcome data, is what is happening to children born in one part of the income distribution from some race or another over the course of their lives. How likely are they, if they're born well-off, to remain well-off? How likely are they, if they are born uh, poor, to remain poor? And what they find is massive, massive, massive differences cross-racially in in mobility. So they find that white children whose parents are in the top fifth of the income distribution, and I'm quoting Dylan Matthews' great uh, dive into this paper here, that white children whose parents are in the top fifth of the income distribution have a 41 one percent chance of remaining there as adults. So if you're white and your parents are pretty well off, 41% chance that you're going to be pretty well off too. For Hispanic children, the rate is 30%. For Asian American children, it's 50%. For black children, it is only 18%. And for American Indians, 23%. So for blacks and American Indians, you're looking at a rate of remaining in the top fifth percentile. That is where you started. uh, That is less than, uh, in the case of African Americans, half of what it is for whites. Um, Now, if you look at the bottom fifth right now, you're looking at mobility going the other way. Can you climb the income ladder? It does not look much better. 10.6% of whites who are born in the bottom fifth of the income distribution make it to the top fifth themselves, as do 25% of Asian Americans. By contrast, only 7% of Hispanic children born in the bottom fifth make it to the top fifth, and along with 3% of American Indian children and only 2.5% of black children. 
So this is for boys, right? If I am if I'm reading Dylan right and, and understand this paper right, no. But the but the effects here are driven, particularly uh, for African Americans, by boys. There is very little difference uh, between white and black women who start at similar levels of the income distribution, but among white and black men, it is huge. The the the, the gaps are huge, which has a ton. I think that's probably been the most important and controversial finding of the paper because it has a ton of implications for how you think about what is going on here. For instance, um, if you are tagging this onto a genetic explanation, uh, which I've been doing a lot of writing about uh, people who are doing that lately, and you are, you know, your assumption is that what you're seeing is, you know, just differences in genetic capabilities. Well, you would not expect that to be operating intra-race between men and women. So that basically shreds that explanation. Well, and to be to be clear, what, what they show about African-American women, because it's it's a little bit nuanced, it right? Is. But is that if you control for their parents' income right. and basic things, African American women and white women do about equally well. Now, in reality, that means African American women do considerably worse yes. than white women uh, because they tend to start off with with economic disadvantages. And women, of course, in general, as we've discussed through Various papers have lower incomes than men, and uh, you know, so so there's there's a gender gap, and there's an observed racial gap for black women. But as far as we can tell by the research, it is not driven by race specific factors, except insofar as as that's reflected in the family's economic standing. Um, whereas for men, it's different, right? That that black men who come from middle class families do quite a bit worse than white boys who come from economically similar families. And so there's a there's a, a big gender gap uh, w- within there. For Hispanics and, and Asians, it's a little bit more more mixed in all those regards, and also with Hispanics and Asians, I, I was the New York Times put out a, a cool tool where you can check different boxes. It, it winds up making quite a big difference whether you look at sort of second generation yes. families or only people whose parents are, are native born. So, so for for Asians in particular, if you include immigrant parents, you see really high levels of upward mobility for. Asian Americans, which appears to be largely driven by the fact that many immigrant mothers are relatively low income and then their kids probably know English a lot better than their parents and wind up doing way, way, way better. Uh, but so the the black-white comparison, immigration doesn't make a, a huge difference. It's mostly a native-born population and you see a huge gap and the gap is driven by differences in, in initial starting conditions but then also seemingly by specific racial disadvantage that's located on men. Yeah, so I think there are two things just zooming out a little bit. Well, first, just putting this study in context. So I think what is so pathbreaking about this study is that it is a lot of the data that it is using. So a lot of the research coming from Raj Chetty at Stanford has really been using this anonymized tax data to do studies that we haven't been able to do before that show intergenerational change over time and let us understand, you know, how race affects that, how different factors affect that. This is part of kind of a long-growing body of work. And I think in some ways, this paper seems to blow through some myths and answer some questions, but also raise a lot of questions that the authors are quite um, quite open about that they are not able to resolve in this paper. And I think this gap between black men and black women is one of those. When Dylan Matthews are um colleague here emailed Raj Chetty about this. You know, He wrote back that he thinks this gap is, quote, the key question to be focusing on as it rules out many theories that wouldn't be, wouldn't obviously differ by gender. Like this is, I want to state up front, if you're wondering why is this different, the researchers don't fully know yet at this point. And these are kind of like the people who are leading the research on this. They have some theories on it. Some of the things they looked at are educational attainment, incarceration rates. Um, Black women tend to be incarcerated at lower rates than black men. So that might be one thing that's going on that's shifting the dynamic for women versus men. But it really is an unresolved question in in this research about what is different between these two groups of people and why is one keeping up. I think the one thing that felt really clear to me coming out of this research is that it really is a disaggregation of class and um, and race. I think a lot of times you see those things put together and, and you kind of hear these news bites about, oh, well, it's the lack of income. It's the lack of a two-parent household. And that's one of the things they specifically debunk in this study. They look at 
white children who grow up, you know, with just a single mother, black children who grow up with a single mother in the similar income bracket. And you see that they have very different outcomes. One of the things you see, one of their findings is that a black man raised by two parents in the 90th percentile. So this is making like 140,000 a year. They earn the same in adulthood as a white man raised by a single mother making $60,000 alone. So that is, you know, that kind of blows through this idea that there is something different about these families in terms of who is raising them, the educational attainment, where they're living. And it kind of leaves you with race as the thing that is that is different, not all these other things that could be going on that could be confounding factors. Yeah, I want to pick up on that because I do think this is an important piece when you're thinking about this study and studies like it as a whole. One way to look at how American mobility operates or does not operate is to think about compounding disadvantage. One thing that we tend to do in studies is we will isolate a variable and then we'll say, okay, why is there an income differential? And we begin looking at that. And and, and so the implication of that is, well, if we could only get the income differential closed, then everything would be fine. Something you see in a lot of these studies is that discrimination, prejudice, uh, racism in this country operates across so many different mechanisms that even if you begin to equalize or even uh, give folks an advantage on one variable or another, it often does not translate into the outcomes you expect. So, so Sarah, you just mentioned the finding, because I really think this finding is extraordinary, that a black man raised by two parents in the 90th percentile earns about the same as a white man raised by a single mother making 60000 But there's also research from, from Kevin Sharkey, who's a sociologist, showing that black families that make more than $100,000 a year, they live in neighborhoods with the, the income composition of white families that make less than $30,000 a year. So even making a lot of money as an African-American family, you're still likely to be in a neighborhood with professional connections and, 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 and social networks that are quite a bit less rich and afford less opportunity economically than much, much, much poor whites. Look, race in America is, is multifaceted. I think even in this study you're seeing with the difference between men and women that, that it operates in ways that are uh, not unknown, but, but, but sometimes defy expectations. But it just shows how hard a problem this is. There's another finding in this study that I, I just find really, really depressing. One of the things that, that Chetty and his co-authors across various papers have tried to focus on is geographic analysis. They've often been looking to see, okay, well, if you're worried about social mobility, sure, maybe America isn't where you want it to be. But surely there are some places in America that do it well. And, and usually they do. They find some places in America that do it well. And then you know you can have this relatively happy conclusion of like, well, let's go look at what they do. Here, they cannot. So the the authors, they, they try to identify neighborhoods where poor black boys do well as well as whites. And in the New York Times, Chetty says, the problem is that there are essentially no such neighborhoods in America. Like, that is depressing. Yes. You know, one thing I did want to say, I was I was playing around. The, the New York Times made these very elaborate charts and, and interactives and, and stuff about it. And I think there's a real focus in this paper and on, on a lot of this line of research on the question of relative mobility, like what you really see in the interactors. But this is also what the research is about, is like moving from quintile to quintile and this kind of shuffling. And I do wonder as like a policy objective how much sense it really makes to think about this Kind of thing that you know this this study comes out of a, a larger project that's called the Equality of Opportunity Project. And to be like a little bit flip about it, it was like we had a debate in America where some people were saying like we need to worry more about inequality, and then people on the right were like, no, what really matters is opportunity. And so now there's this big economic research project, and it shines a lot of sort of progressive left leaning lights on the ways in which we don't have equality of opportunity. But but I've always felt that like the the better response to both the concern about inequality of outcome and the concern about inequality of opportunity is just that like what we really want is like broadly shared prosperity, right? That if the average income is like flat or if incomes for the whole bottom 80% of the population are falling, the question of like shuffling between quintiles is like not that interesting to people. And one like really predominant, I would say dominant political sentiment in America these days, like that I think really like drives Donald Trump, it, it drives a lot of things, is white people of about middling income and middling educational attainment feeling that the 
trajectory of their family's economic expectations has like leveled off that America used to be this like rocket ship of upward goodness and like now it's turned flat and they're like hearing all the time about how much privilege they have and they don't feel privileged. They feel that things have gotten worse. And something this paper shows is that like they really are privileged in a way compared to to African-American and Native American and to an extent Latino families. But the like really simplistic, naive, like unsophisticated research that shows that median household income used to be rising a lot and now it is not rising a lot still just seems like in some ways more important to me. Like I don't know how much we would care about this relative mobility if wages and incomes across the board were rising a lot. And in fact, they aren't. And that's like sets off all kinds of zero-sum scrambles. And it gives us projects like this where like, I'm not sure we really know what to say about this research. The best hypothesis that they seem to have is that racial disparities in the criminal justice system are driving this because that seems like something that falls much more on black men than on black women, right? Because, you know, men are in jail much more. And um, one, one would also say that possibly, though, you could argue that the same thing is driving the incarceration crisis. Right. right? But I mean— any, these weird chicken and egg things. But at any rate, like, even if we didn't have proof of big picture— Like, the racial disparities in the criminal justice system are clearly bad on their own terms, right? I was reading this story of, of Stefan Clark, who was shot in his grandmother's backyard by, by police in Sacramento because um, he was holding a cell phone. And police officers, I guess, they thought it was a gun. So, like, that's a horrible, right? Like, it's horrible on its own terms. You don't need a, like, complicated linked administrative data to, like, say that the racial disparities in these circumstances are bad. So, it's, it's this, like, incredibly impressive project, but I don't know what it, what it leaves you with exactly other than what we knew going into it, which is that, like, it would be good for everyone's incomes to be higher and also that racial disparities in criminal justice are bad. But I, I felt left with with more than that from reading this study. I think one of the things I listened to Emily Badger, who's the New York Times reporter who's been covering this, um, talk about this study on on their podcast, The Daily. And one of the things I got really into depth in, which was my most depressing finding from this study, you know, aside from this neighborhood situation, is that even for when you look at a multi-generational look, so one of the things they're doing here is working across 30 years of data. So you can look at someone, their kids and their grandkids at this point, because it is such a long-term data set, is that even when, when a white kid can move up economically, when they're able to move up a quintile or two, their kids are decently likely to stay there. That once you achieve that higher economic status, you pass that on to your kids. For Black families, that isn't true. That even when you see in the Chetty data that a, you know, Black man or woman is able to move up economically in a quintile, that doesn't really do much for their kids. They're kind of fighting the exact same fight over again. So I think the median wages and median growth, it masks very different stories that are happening for people who on in the numbers look quite similar, who are having similar earnings, have like this similar trajectory, who racially, if you met them, would look quite different. And I think that's a pretty profound finding in my view, that knowing about where medium income in is and where larger trends for the rest of the U.S. doesn't um, doesn't dilute for me in some way. Let's take a break. Dollar Shave Club. You probably heard of Dollar Shave Club. You may have used Dollar Shave Club. I know I've used it. Get a great shave. Get an affordable shave. It's right there in the name, right? An amazing, affordable shave. But there is so much more to dollarshaveclub.com. Uh, they deliver everything that you need to look, feel, and smell your best. It's more than razors, and it's way better than shopping in the stores. There are some things, honestly, that it's nice to shop in a store for, but these kind of personal care supplies, they're often, like, locked up in weird ways. You gotta, like, flag somebody down. It's harder to find anybody. There's incredible convenience in going online to dollarshaveclub.com, getting everything you need to look, smell, and feel your best. They've got shampoo, they've got body wash, they've got toothpaste, some of the best razors that I've ever used. You get an amazing high-quality shave every morning from my Dollar Shave Club executive razor. But really, like a, a true hero of any morning is their Dr. Carver Shave Butter. Uh, it helps the razor gently slide across your skin. Uh, it's really great to experience it. And they deliver everything for you. It's really simple, really 
really convenient, really pleasurable, and then you get great stuff. You're going to feel great. You're going to look great. Uh, so for a mind-blowing experience, join Dollar Shave Club today. For just $5 with free shipping, you'll get the six-blade executive razor plus trial sizes of shave butter, body cleanser, and one white Charlie's. Then keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month. So get yours at dollarshaveclub.com weeds. That's dollarshaveclub.com weeds. So this is something where one weakness of this study, and I don't want to call it weakness of a study, they can do what they can do, but I do think the concept of wealth needs to be added into this because we have a tendency to talk a lot about income in, in part because we have a lot of good data on income. It's a very intuitive uh, concept to people. But wealth is, I think, a lot more important for some of the things we're talking about here than, than income. I'm separately working on a big project around the racial wealth gap. And something that is very, very clear in the data on wealth is that even when you have white and black families of similar income levels, they have very, very, very disparate levels of wealth because wealth is so multi-generational. So if I'm remembering these numbers right, and, and this is for memory, so forgive me if I'm a little bit off, but the, the racial wealth gap right now in America, the median white family has roughly $171,000 in, in net worth. And the median African-American family has roughly, I believe it's $14,000 in net worth. So that is a huge gap. And you'll often have something, a, a situation where, you know, let's say you have a family, a white family where the household income is, say, 70000 so you're not in the top quintile or the top uh, decile. But you know, you come from a family that has had homes in its in good neighborhoods for years, that has had some multi generational saving, and so you know you have two hundred or two hundred fifty thousand dollars of, of net worth, or maybe you just have a hundred, one hundred fifty thousand. You're actually even below the median on that. Whereas an African American family, where somebody's a first generation in their family to go to college, and they've like grappled their way into the upper income uh, portions, you know, maybe they make one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year as a household, but they have no wealth, and so they are or they have very little wealth. And so a couple things happen in that scenario. One, if your community does not have much wealth and you're the richest member of your community, of your family circle, of your friend circles, a lot of people need to come to you for help. So you end up spending a lot of your money and money that you, you could be using to build a nest egg or, or, or buy a house in a better neighborhood. You end up spending it helping your mom get medical care or helping your cousin pay their school bills. This is a, a huge thing around wealth creation in, in America. And it's much less of a problem if you're coming from a context where more people around you have a savings buffer. The other thing is is that it makes it really, really hard to handle shocks. So again, you know, if you're a family making $70,000 a year, but you have $150,000 in, in net worth, and something goes wrong, you lose your job, or there's a medical emergency, or any of the many, many things that can end up derailing a family's progress, you have the space to deal with it for a bit and then get back on your feet. Whereas if you have, if you're making $100,000 a year, trying to support, uh, you know, folks in your folks in your network, trying to kind of, you know, send your kid to a good school, and something goes wrong, you lose your job, there's a medical emergency again, whatever it is, you don't get back. You 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 fall down the ladder, and it's much harder to climb back up. And so so something that I think would make a lot of these results look more normal. I think it's very surprising to read a result that says, well, white families with X income do much better than black families with even more income than that. You look at that, that, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, it does when you add in institutional racism and other things, but there's a reason that the finding is being seen as, seen as appalling. If you redid those same numbers by wealth, I'm not sure it would look like that at all. I think you'd see in a lot of these cases, you had families with more wealth just doing better than families with less wealth. And, and once you begin to look at this in terms of multi-generational wealth and wealth building across generations um, for African-Americans and American Indians in this country has been, we've done an enormous amount amount, a huge amount of American public policy was singularly oriented towards making that as impossible as possible. Just looking at this generation, I think, hides a lot of that historical legacy. Well, and also, you know, a lot of public policy in the United States is income sensitive, but wealth blind. Yep. So I was in I was in Wisconsin recently and, and University of Wisconsin has a new-ish policy where it's I forget exactly what the deal is. If it's if it's tuition free or debt free, but for in-state families that are from below the median uh, state income, you know, it sounds good. It's good pro mobility policy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but if you're looking at, to Ezra's point, I mean, a Wisconsin family that is at the 75th percentile of the state's income, the odds are that an African American family at that level has much less 
actual financial resources than a white family that's at that income level, because a white family at that income level will likely be a family that has been in the middle class for several generations, that has home equity in the suburbs or you know in, in a rural area, th- things like that. So a, a policy that aims to help people who are at the bottom while for the sake of affordability to not help people who don't need help, it's not intended to be racially skewed in that way. But by sort of relatively disadvantaging low wealth, slightly above average income families, it, it sort of punishes those efforts to like get on the ladder. You know, if you were the first in your family to to go to college to get a professional job, you're being treated as equivalent to a lot of white families that in fact have a lot more financial resources than you do. And you know, governments have we have our reasons for doing that, but it's like when wealth tests are applied to programs, they normally exclude owner-occupied housing and retirement savings, which is for some good reasons. But again, like that's the sort of workhorse of white middle class wealth in the United States. It's exactly what a lot of African-American families uh, that are superficially doing okay lack. And it it's also it's much more difficult. We don't measure wealth well in the United States or rigorously uh, because you have to pay income taxes on an annual basis. The government has administrative records verifiable on everybody's incomes. Wealth, a lot of it is tied up in houses. We can sort of impute how much a person's house is worth, but it's not necessarily liquid. It's not necessarily well measured. You know, you don't really know what your house is worth until you try to sell it in a certain sense. But it's also obviously the case that like owning a home is worth more than not owning a home. But but our policy tends to be blind to that kind of thing, which does play into this. Although again, I. I would emphasize, I mean, the the starkness of the gender split is relevant here, right? I mean, if it was Mm -hmm. driven entirely by family wealth, you would expect to see a gap between black women and white women, uh, which which you don't, right? When you control for family income alone, the the black-white gap goes away for women. So something is happening to black men. Again, I mean, the criminal justice hypothesis seems plausible um, or just some other kind of, of... slightly oddball discrimination in the way people eyeball these situations. I just, I'm like overflowing with solutions to problems in America, but like not particularly to this problem. So I think that actually speaks to the one kind of optimistic finding that came out of this study was I know, you know, Raj Chetty has said there are no neighborhoods. It seems to be a slight overstatement. It seems like there is a number of neighborhoods one can count on your fingers where black boys and white boys have similar outcomes. One of them is pretty close to where we are, Silver Spring, Maryland, which is like a kind of urban, almost suburban area right outside the D.C. line. Um, I think also in the New York Times article, they mentioned some areas in the in Queens and the Bronx, and those are literally the three that I am aware of. So we're talking about a small number. And one of the things, they went through a whole host of, well, what is different about these places? What, what, what can we learn from this 1%? And one of the things they've found is that these places tend to um, have a higher presence of black fathers in the community. What seemed to matter in the outcomes of the study is not necessarily whether you had a father at home, but whether there were examples of black fathers around you. And there's they were not able to look into, well, what is that transmission mechanism? Like, what might the presence of more black men who are fathers to children in the community change? But some of the ideas that they raise there is that you have more people to model behavior on, that you see someone who's a teacher, who wears a suit, who kind of does something that you could envision yourself doing, and you have this sort of role model aspect going on. And so I think that actually speaks a lot to the incarceration. You know, if you're thinking about, well, why is the gap between black women and white women so small and this gap between black boys and white boys so large— seems plausible that if the one thing that is setting this tiny fraction of neighborhoods apart is that they have a larger presence of um, black fathers in the community, it really it speaks to me as the incarceration problem could be pretty key in, in, in what we're seeing that's happening that's different between these two groups. I just really want to emphasize, like I don't have data on this, but I don't want to say I'm not persuaded by the incarceration hypothesis. What I want to say is that I think that that 
two is a reflection of the problem as opposed to, to, to the problem itself. That the reason you have black men being locked up uh, in large part at much, much, much higher rates than, than white men, the reason that young black boys are often seen as men by the criminal justice system uh, in a way that young white boys aren't, the reason that um, black men who do drugs at the same rate as white men get arrested more often, that it's flowing from the same kinds of societal stereotyping and racist attitudes that other things here are flowing from. So some of it, some of the mechanism here may definitely be working through diverting black men into the criminal justice system. I don't deny that in any way. But I don't think that those attitudes only exist there. They also exist when young black men walk into a job interview. They also exist when folks in professional careers are deciding who to mentor. They, they also exist in all these other places. So again, and I don't think this is a, a disagreement with the paper. I'm not saying that incarceration isn't a piece of it here, but incarceration is, I think, also reflecting the same thing. I, I would say that these are um, you know, multiple things that are, are stemming from some of the same attitudes in our society, and those attitudes end up playing out in all kinds of different venues. I do hope that, that this team will do a paper at some point on role modeling across the different things. We, we talked before about an earlier uh, paper that, that this team did that looked at patents and inventors. And one of the most interesting things they found there was that, that girls across races, here, here was a gender gap but not a racial gap, right, was that in every metro area in America, girls were less likely than boys to grow up to be inventors. But the gap was smaller in places where there were more women inventors when they grew up, right? And it wasn't about where you where you live, but it was that like if you were a young girl in school in a metro area that had a disproportionately large number of women inventors, you were disproportionately likely to grow up to be an inventor. And specifically even in the field that there were women getting patents, right? And it was another thing where like they said like we cannot demonstrate like what causes this exactly, right? It's a little it's a little odd, frankly, to even think that people would be aware of something like that. But it's it's across two very different domains, right? Like economic mobility for poor black boys versus like likelihood of becoming an inventor for academically talented uh, girls of all races. There appears to be a community level effect, right, of some kind of like if there are people like you who are locally present who seem to be doing well at something, you become more likely to do well at that exact same thing. And it's it's this is like absolutely the kind of terrain that professional economists are like not that well I think like equipped to investigate or even to conceptualize because like in a good economic model of human behavior, like this does not impact your incentives or even your formal opportunities like at all. Uh, but you can also, I mean, like you can imagine why something like that would matter, but it, like it's weird. It's like so touchy feely and bizarre that like casual observation of what people are doing would have large impacts on your life, but, but possibly true. Yeah, this is, I will say, this is a body of research that I think a year ago I would have written off as total bullshit. And it's one where my like views have changed, not because of this particular study, but a lot of writing I was doing around the 2016 election about um, gender and politics and kind of what it would mean for there to be a female president in the United States. And one of the things I started looking into was the body of research around women in politics. There are a surprising number of countries that have gender quotas in politics. And a lot of that really changed my my view on this kind of ether of role models idea, which I thought was really squishy and like, what does it matter? You know, if it's not like actually more money coming in your house, if you're not seeing your own parents go to a job. One of the studies that I found, and this is like super far away, you know, geographically, academically from this one was um, a study in the journal Science from 2012 that looked at when an Indian province mandated a gender quota in their local governments. And you just saw a perfect natural experiment where it phased in over years. Some places get the gender quotas um, earlier than others. And just really significant changes from having more women in government. The fraction of parents who thought that their daughter's occupation should be determined by their in-laws declined from 76 to 65 percent. The number of minutes young girls spent on housework declined 18 minutes. Um, nothing changed for boys. And the educational attainment of young boys and young girls completely closed. That didn't happen in the areas that did not have this influx of female leaders. And 
I think knowing this research, I found that a really compelling and interesting argument about what might be different and what might lead to success is just this seeing people around you who you might not even interact with that much, who might be like a teacher you have one year or even like seeing people going to jobs and commuting and saying, oh, that person looks like me. I I have revised my views over the past year or so that that can be a pretty powerful force. Let's take a break and talk about Facebook. We've been talking about Spotify for a few weeks now on The Weeds. You probably know Spotify as a music streaming service. It's probably the leading, the best music streaming service out there. All kinds of songs, whatever you want, on demand. It's fantastic. But we're here now for podcast listeners to tell you that Spotify has podcasts now, uh, which is really cool. It means you can listen to your podcasts on your phone, on your desktop, with Spotify, however you want. But also they exist on, on smart speakers, right? It's a great reason to use Spotify for your podcasting is that then you can listen on your Google Home, on your Amazon on Alexa, uh, whatever you want. Start streaming today to stay up to date on the world's latest news on Spotify. Uh, so here's what you need to know. You open the app on your mobile device or desktop, click on the browse channel, and then you click on the podcast section, and then you can use the world's best audio streaming service for podcasts too. Facebook has, you know, been in the news lately uh, because of this this scandal around Cambridge Analytica that, that we talked about uh, last week. Last week on the, on the weeds with Andrew and, and Dara. Uh, but I was, uh, as, as I said before, at, at the University of Wisconsin. I, I've been talking to a lot of uh, journalism students and, and professors, public policy students and, and professors, and it inspired me to sort of get off my chest something that has been sitting there for for a long time, which is that Facebook. Like many things, it has its ups and its downs, but it's it's basically bad, is my take. And and I want to explain what I mean there, right? Which is not Facebook should be illegal, right? Make an analogy, right? Like Sour Patch Kids, right? Delicious. I, I don't really <laughs> think we should make Sour Patch Kids illegal. I like Sour Patch Kids. I had some the other day. But they're not good for you. And there are questions about regulatory and tax policy that you can ask about that. But I think most of all, there are social questions that you can ask about the fact that it is uncontroversial to say that Sour Patch Kids are bad, right? Like, no one's going to be like, what we should all do is triple our consumption of Sour Patch Kids. Although one, I think, interesting place in this analogy is that I think there's widespread, like, uncomplicated view that they're pleasurable, which as you'll get into this, I think even there, the question of Facebook is different. But an analogy, right? A famous story from the early days of Apple Computer is that at a certain point, the board told Steve Jobs, like, he needed to bring in, like, a real businessman to, to help him run the company. And so he tries to recruit, uh, successfully, John Scully from Pepsi. And his pitch to him, like, it famously ends with, like, do you want to spend your life selling sugared water or do you want to help me change the world, right? And that's integral to Silicon Valley's role in American society, right, is a belief that, like, there are a lot of companies and they do a lot of stuff. But a lot of the stuff that a lot of companies do, like, well, it's fine. It's, like, trivial to harmful, like getting people to drink more sugary water, right? Whereas the technology industry is changing the world. And that's why it has, like, never been suggested that, like, man, what we really ought to do with America's high schools is apply the learnings from the candy world, right? Even though, like, there's successful candy companies. But people all the time— definitely do that, though, with applying those learnings in America's high school vending machines. Right. But people— (laughs) all the time suggest, and I think not without reason, that we should like look to innovators in the technology space as like as like thought leaders, right, in American society, as people who are doing something that is like more interesting, more important, and more valuable than like a little hustle uh, on the street. And it matters to the companies because like they are trying. To, it's a very competitive labor market. Like they are trying to get really talented engineers like right out of school to come work for these companies. And it's an important part of the pitch is not just like, well, we can pay you a lot of money because all the companies can pay you a lot of money. Um, but that like, that like, this is good. Like this is a good place to work. We are, we are doing things. These companies, they all have a lot of high flying rhetoric about themselves and, and, and what they're doing. And like anything in corporate marketing, like you expect a fair amount of bullshit in, in anybody's thing. Uh, but with Facebook, I think it's really, 
at another level than what you what you see at, at some of these things, that there's a very destructive uh, forces at work here. And you can see it in the things that the Facebook people themselves say. Like one of the craziest quotes that, that I've ever read was there was a story about how Facebook is fueling genocide in Myanmar. And they they quote the guy who runs Facebook's newsfeed. Not that, that people are using the platform. Yes. Right. Not that Facebook was like, let, let, let's do some genocide. <laughs> right. Uh, sorry. The, the platform, you know, fake news, whatever is going. And very tribal news. Right. You know, and that's being used to, to inflame hatred. And it's, of course, not unfamiliar, right? Like there was a radio station in Rwanda that was like famously integral to genocide that, that was happening there, although not a radio station that was owned by an American media company. Um, but so they they quote the, the head of Facebook's newsfeed in the story, and he's not like angrily denying that this is true. He says that it's something he loses sleep over. And he keeps sort of seeing this from Facebook, like, oh, like, we're sorry that there's all kinds of fake news on our platform. We're really going to try to find something so it's not like a huge mechanism for disinformation. Or their their latest thing when they said they were going to like downgrade news and re-up like, you know, commenting about your friend's dogs and stuff. Facebook's own people cited research showing that, like, using Facebook the way most people actually use Facebook to just, like, scroll through the feed and check stuff out, like, makes you lonely and sad. And so they want to try to re-engineer how it works to, like, downgrade the loneliness and sadness-inducing stuff. And then I'll say, like, I personally... I, I have not quit Facebook. I, I've used Facebook way longer than than most people. Um I think it's okay. It's it's okay for me. Um, I like the Weeds Facebook group. I like promoting my articles. But there's like a good Danish study where they, they took a thousand people and they randomly assigned them like quit Facebook, keep using Facebook. They found that the people who quit Facebook uh, are, are happier or more satisfied in their life. But then they also find that that effect is very heavily concentrated among the heaviest Facebook users, right? So it's just that like using Facebook a little like is fine, right? It, it has utility and it doesn't have any damaging impact on your life. But using it a lot can actually create real problems for you, which again, right, if you describe a person who a couple times a year enjoys some Sour Patch Kids, like that's great, right? Like they're tasty, it's happy. But if you're eating tons of Sour Patch Kids all the time, that's really bad. But when you have industries that are built around profiting off addicts, and you see this in alcohol, you see it in gambling, like it's really destructive. Because you can say, like a million people visit a casino once in a while and they have fun, they lose some money, but like so what? That's great. But when you talk about like the real profit center is like sad addicts pulling the lever at slot machines all the time, like that's not so great. But like that's that's Facebook. It's so it's kind of funny you bring up Sour Patch Kids as our candy because those are like literally my favorite candy yeah, and the, they're the best candy because they're delicious. Are you a chocolate? Whatever. Yeah, uh, whatever. Kit Kats. Anyway, Kit Kats Sour, are the king of candies. Sour Patch. Ezra's leaving the podcast for a while. Sour Patch Kids <laughs> are the best candy. And so often, for some reason, like when I'm in airports, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to treat myself to some Sour Patch Kids, and I feel disgusting after eating them afterwards in a weird way. Like it's almost very similar to the feeling right. of like spending an hour on Facebook where you feel like, oh, like what did I just like spend that time Relatedly, doing? Relatedly, due to flight delays, I was recently in an airport for a long time, ate a bunch of Sour Patch Kids and felt <laughs> so gross. If someone I, from the Sour Patch Company is randomly <laughs> listening to the weeds, this like, episode has been a real roller coaster for them. <laughs> like, like, they came for some policy commentary and like things have really gone off the rails. We need to get that Nature Box sponsorship If they would like back. to sponsor the weeds, you know, Matt and I are big fans. And I've seen this before. I forget where I saw it first, but this, like, this comparison of Facebook to junk food, but it feels really really true, this feeling you get after spending a long time with others. One of the, st the studies you cited um, in your piece, Matt, there's a study that found that spending time on Facebook, it leads to a negative mood driven by, quote, a feeling of having wasted time, which you probably didn't need academics to figure out. But I think one of the things that you know I've been thinking through as we've been getting ready for this segment, like what is different about Facebook than other social networks that I spend time on that I that I don't feel disgusting after using. Um, and I think probably I don't know if it counts as a social network, but I think Google Chat or like Gchat is a very, very different experience of interacting with people who you're not actually talking to face to face. And the two, you know, infrastructures could not be 
more different on Gchat. Like you have to start up a conversation with someone. Usually people like aren't added. Like I don't have random people from 10 years ago in my Gchat contact sending me messages or me randomly getting updates about their life. It's a much more interactive discussion that's happening versus this kind of passive browsing um, through through people you haven't seen for a decent amount of time that um, in a weird way, this reminded me of some of the discussion we were having last week, Ezra, about how economists will often talk about revealed preference and like, oh, if you keep going back to Facebook, like clearly that just must be the thing you prefer. But that feels very wrong at this point, given all the research we have about how bad people feel after spending a lot of time there. And it, it, like Matt was saying, it kind of speaks to some of the things we see in addiction and in other spaces seem to be surfacing here as well. Yeah. And I, I did an interview on my other podcast, uh, The Ezra Klein Show, with Tristan Harris, who used to work at Google, became their design ethicist, and, and has left to, to really push this time well spent movement and humane design. He's become a very big critic of, of, of these organizations. Um, and he makes the argument very eloquently about the many, many ways in which these products are built to addict us. Uh, and, and that's where it gets different than just revealed preference. I mean, we all know smokers who wish they had never started smoking, who, yes, I mean, their revealed preference is they go out five times a day, even when it's cold, even when they wish they could quit and smoke a cigarette. But that is not like how they wish their lives were going. And I often find analogies to drugs helpful here. Again, if you look at the revealed preferences of opioid users, the preferences to use a lot of opioids, but a lot of people regret doing that in the first place. I do think, though, this conversation benefits from a little bit more of a compared to what. As our invocation of Sour Patch Kids suggests, <laughs> there are a lot of things in the economy, things in our world that, you know, their point is not to make us better. Their point is that, whatever, they're pleasurable, even, even if in large quantities they're not pleasurable. I don't know. Like people, people like drinking soda. They like eating Sour Patch Kids. And so, you know, if people were not doing Facebook, what would they be doing? If we shut it down tomorrow, what what would happen? If we shut it all down tomorrow, if we like took everybody's smartphones away, what would happen? And I think there are interesting questions here. So I, I thought your invocation of GChat and, and before that AIM, ah. um, you pour one out. I, you know, I had not thought about that. I had not thought about for a long time how in high school how much time I spent on AIM. Um, ASLing with people. <laughs> uh, and, and people of a certain age will get that. But also, clearly, one of the uh, things that is substituting here is TV, right? Is it better to just be staring at your television than using Facebook? Facebook does provide you a lot of news. Some of that news is even true. Um, they provide you links to interesting things. There's more opportunities to engage. Uh, video games are hyper-addictive, particularly these massive multiplayer games. I mean, there is a coterie, particularly although not only of men in this country, who are playing video games astonishing amounts now, to the, to the extent that there is a debate in economics about whether or not video games have reduced male labor force participation. If you didn't have Facebook, would people instead just be playing, you know, Diablo Overwatch or League of Legends or, I don't know, other video games? And, and so I just think it's important to, to ask this question because I, I do agree that there are a lot of things about Facebook that concern me. There are a lot of things about all these social networks that concern me. Matt, I think you're, you're a bigger Twitter fan than I am, but I find Twitter I find it really anxiety producing. Like I go on there and it's like, it's just like a shot of cortisol to my bloodstream, even as I also find it interesting and other things. And I feel on Facebook and Twitter and all these places, and this reflects my particular job. But I can't just leave. Like I, I, I kind of have to be there. It's part of it's part of my role, and I don't think it makes me happier. But on the other hand, there's just a lot. I do not always. I'm not confident that just ripping through this stuff, you get the substitution effects that 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 you would want to get. And so, how bad it is, I think, has to be thought of as a comparative question. I, I think though that look. If we could bargain down to like Facebook is exactly average, right? If if Mark Zuckerberg was like, I am an average CEO who like an average businessman is just trying to make money for myself because I'm Mr. Average and this is an average place to go work and spend your time. Like it's not special in any way. We have no unique mission to connect the world. Like I don't need this weirdo corporate governance structure because this is just one of infinite number of totally normal, totally average, totally banal ways to make money off kind of exploiting people. Like that itself would be revolutionary in its impact on Silicon Valley and culture and society, right? Like if there, there's like a reason that they don't pitch themselves that way. But it does, can, can I, sorry, and I know I'm interrupting, can I, can I push you on one piece of this? 
the the mission is not all bullshit. Like, and I'll, I'll say, I met my wife. I didn't meet her on Facebook, but you after didn't. we met, the way we we met, um, because she was looking at a room in in my dirty group house. <laughs> um, but after we met, the way we started talking to each other was through Facebook. Right. And now I want to be clear. Yeah. I don't believe Facebook is average. I think Facebook is much worse than average. For example, a lead executive at Facebook loses sleep at night over the role his company plays in fueling genocide, which like I don't think is true of your average soft drink salesman. But like the claim that they are making for themselves, if if they would ratchet it down, but it's it's like it's a funny kind of two-way defense, right? Like if you went and you went to like you wouldn't be talking about maybe Mark Zuckerberg will run for president. Maybe Sheryl Sandberg should be treasury secretary. Maybe we need to look at Silicon Valley's models of disrupting higher education, right? If not for these people occupying this august place of, of hyper social influence and like they, they don't deserve it, uh, particularly the Facebook people don't deserve it. And like it's, um, you know, it's. But doesn't it, that seem it's like it's sickening. happening? Um, which is to say, I think the claim in your article was like, Mark Zuckerberg, if he's a good person, should shut Facebook down tomorrow. He yeah. should like go to one of the servers, pull the thing out of the wall, and like, there's no more he Facebook. Absolutely should. Um, At a minimum, well, we could to, run to, that just, experiment to just for finish, a couple days. <laughs> to just finish the thought, A B testing. Um, <laughs> to just finish the thought. If the claim is differently, like the status of Facebook societally should be lowered, I think that's happening very effectively right now. I don't think you're going to be hearing a lot about Mark Zuckerberg 2020. Um, Sheryl Sandberg was somebody who would be would have been considered as Treasury Secretary in a Hillary Clinton administration. I don't think that's going to happen anymore. I, I think that I think the tech backlash is leading to a status reevaluation. Which, if that's the whole aim, then it's then that's already. But going I don't on. know if a status reevaluation is like pulling Facebook like out of the ether in any sort of way. Right, like, I agree. I'm curious, like, you know, maybe like Mark Zuckerberg does not become president, but like are people actually, you know, I, I know like there's like this delete Facebook movement. I'd be really curious to see internal analytics of Facebook of like, my guess is what it looks like is a wave of people quitting and then like slowly trickling back on as they like get invited to a social event. It's like something happens, you know, I think all three of us use Facebook professionally. So like we're all going to maintain our accounts on there the same with Twitter. Um, even if like you, you lose the prestige for some of the people at the very top, I don't know if it really like pulls Facebook out of the way we interact with each right. other. But then they should be hit with like a cavalcade of new regulatory issues, right? So like right now, there's this European data protection uh, rule that's coming on uh, coming online, I think, next month, right? American companies are not only lobbying against it furiously in Europe, they have successfully lobbied the American government to make it like the national policy of the United States to fight against European regulation of technology companies in international trade talks, right? We should not do that. Instead of fighting European regulation, we should be saying the same regulations that are applied in Europe, we're going to apply them. They're going to be stricter here. We're going to have a race to see which developed country has the toughest, like most throw the book at you. Your life and career will be ruined forever if you have a data leak penalty. Right now, if you do an ad on TV, political advertising, there has to be lots of disclosure. Online, there's nothing. Like We should change that. And there should be incredibly severe penalties for, for violating it. Um, it's not just that we have no antitrust regulation of technology companies. We use the antitrust regulators to penalize brick-and-mortar businesses that have tried to fight. That was the, the Apple eBooks case against Amazon. Like We should flip that. Like There are like real consequences that could be unloaded. And the defense of all this sort of kid gloves treatment of the industry has been, well, no, like it's so good, right? Like it needs to be protected and fostered. But like if it's not good, if it's actually bad, then like we don't need to err on the side of, you know, letting these these guys do whatever they so want. So I think this actually brings up, though, a couple of super interesting questions that, that help us talk about this as an, as an industry as opposed to as a company. So one, I, I thought there were some interesting interviews Mark Zuckerberg gave where he said, I did not expect to have to make the this I'm paraphrasing like the quasi political decisions now what is hate speech like you know how should people's data be treated that that I'm making and he he kind of said like you know there are places where I wouldn't mind regulators just doing this for me you know so it's not on me and you're not getting mad at me there's a lot of this data breach stuff that could very much go into privacy regulations that end up enhancing uh, kind of Facebook's lock on data, their lock on the advertising market, that they create an incumbency effect. I'm broadly actually on the same page of those sort of regulations 
questions you were just bringing up, Matt. But I, I do think one thing here is that one of the issues is Facebook now operates almost as a quasi-governmental entity. I mean, it is something in between the private market and the, and the government. If you read, Mark Zuckerberg had this huge manifesto. Now it's probably eight months a year ago, but it's very, very ambitious. And he was really talking about creating something that was like a reinvention of civil society, like a mediating civil society infrastructure that I wrote about at the time. And the closest thing to what he was talking about was the role religion has played in, in, in human life. Like that was the size of the ambition. And when you are going to be that big and that powerful, the things you are then going to have to decide and deal with, the kinds of effects like around a, a massacre in a country that you're not even paying that much attention to uh, are, are unbelievably huge. And so there eventually can be a comfort in being like, you know what? The political system has accountability measures for this. People don't like them already. Like, let them take the heat on it. So that's one thing. The other, though, and, and this is why I, I do push on this point of comparison. Let's say that we heavily regulated Facebook in the way that we pulled Microsoft into antitrust a couple years back. Or let's say we broke Facebook up. Or let's say that we turned Facebook off tomorrow. I think that we are facing a problem here that is going to prove over the next 20, 30, 50 years much bigger than any one company, which is that we are getting better and better and better at understanding how to manipulate the brain's pleasure centers and its addictive centers. We are developing consumer technologies that can be very addictive and can be very powerful and can be very immersive and that have in many ways a very similar uh, form of effect on people as drugs. But instead of how we treat hard drugs, which is we try to make them impossible to get, we cheer every subsequent increase in consumer electronics power and affordability. Um, you know, I read Ready Player One a couple years ago and, and just read on Vox uh, in an interesting explainer. There's now like a big backlash to this book. And uh, But whatever, I'm a white guy from the 80s and the book spoke to me, <laughs> which I think is the, the issue here. <laughs> but it's a pretty interesting portrayal of what I think of as like the VR dystopia, which is 20 years from now, the addiction qualities and immersion qualities of Facebook, they're going to look trivial. It's why Facebook paid billions of dollars to buy Oculus Rift, because they see VR as a coming thing that will disrupt them. And now you're going to put on a headset and the world is going to get much more interesting. Um, you know, and I, I did a podcast, which is one of the favorite I've done with John Lanier, who's the founder of the term virtual reality, has been an innovator in this space for a long time. And, you know, he's very optimistic about it, but he does talk about the way it can be the most terrifying Skinner box ever created. I mean, it, it's such a power tool for behavioral modification because its ability to measure what is happening in you at any given moment, your heart rate, your movement is profound and it can um, alter your surroundings to get exactly the physiological responses it wants. So I, in my view, this is a real challenge we're going to be facing. I see Silicon Valley spending a lot of time worrying about AI risk. Uh, the idea they're going to create a strong artificial intelligence so powerful that it begins making itself smarter and more powerful on an ever-accelerating cycle and eventually decides, um, either as a byproduct of its ambitions or as its actual ambition, to get rid of humanity, enslave humanity, whatever it might be. And there's real, like Elon Musk is worried about this, and Mark Zuckerberg and Peter, I'm sorry, uh, I don't know if Zuckerberg is, but Peter Thiel and um, a lot of these folks, right, Bill Gates, are thinking about this. And I think that, at least in the near term, the real profound danger is that we're going to get so good at building these immersive platforms and environments that for a lot of people, they're just going to begin to lose touch with reality. We think it's happened with some folks in video games now, but where we are now on that is nowhere compared to where we're going to be in 30 years. And I don't think society is at all ready for that disruption. And I, and I think Facebook is like a small version of what is coming. Yeah. For me, that raises like, well, and then it's like, well, what does that actually mean and feel like for people. Because you know what it feels like? I like my job. I like hosting the weeds. I like writing. I would be, I think I would miss something if I were in virtual reality. But if you're working like a job you don't really like, and all of a sudden like automation is making it way cheaper to live and you can spend, you know, 80% of your time in this VR atmosphere. I don't know. I, I have not thought through whether I think that is necessarily a bad thing or not. If that is, you know, if you're able to get by and then that is your Again, this gets into some like difficult questions of whether that is actually your preference or you're just being kind of pushed in this direction. Shutting down Facebook, I don't know where that leaves us. I think it leaves us, you know, just looking at a lot of other things that are similar. You know, I've one thing I've done, you know, I have been using Facebook less. You know, I don't have the app on my phone. I'm logged out on my phone. I can basically only see it when I'm at my work computer. And I've been unfollowing anyone who I haven't talked to in real life in a year. So that makes it a much smaller universe, a harder place 
to get sucked into. But then I just like spent a lot of time on my phone, like reading pregnancy message boards, because if anyone who is pregnant knows that's like a sinkhole you can just fall into that is not useful and probably harmful in the same way Facebook is harmful. I, I guess I don't I'm not decided at this point about like what it would mean if we had more people spending time in these alternative environments. I think generally my hunch is net bad, but I don't know. That's from like the situation that I personally come from. I think there's a fascinating mismatch between what technology billionaires say they spend a lot of time worrying about and what they, if you never talk to them, appear to be worrying about, which is a fanatical, rabid dog scramble to cut their own taxes and have no regulation at all on their businesses. I have never heard Peter Thiel in an interview say, all I care about is just lining my pockets with as much money as possible. But like, that's what they're doing. You know, like Facebook is hiring 11 people for various jobs about uh, privacy and public policy manager of consumer products and emerging technology, a politics and government outreach manager. They have like 11 listings with policy in the name in D.C. right now, like three in Brussels. It's like they just want to be able to keep on fucking people but the, over. But this is all to but say no. these are companies operating within a capitalistic structure. I mean, that, that well, part doesn't Zuckerberg, surprise me. But, but I mean, Zuckerberg has specifically structured Facebook so that he's not accountable to shareholders or directors or things like that. Like, he can do what he wants. And, like, I, I, I don't really know, like, why. Like, I, I, I some people, you know, like you guys have criticized me for uh, uh, the stance I take that, like, I think these people, like, I think they want to be good people. I think they want to try to do the right thing. But, like, it is really hard to think critically about yourself and the impact that what you do is having on the world. And like, I would love to see some actual self-reflection. If I'm going to tell the New York Times that I am losing sleep at night over the role my work is playing in fostering ethnic cleansing, like, what are you going to do about it, man? Like, what's what's the issue here? And they often grapple with these things as if you see it a lot in the in in the news discussions. So like, they will talk about what a difficult problem it is for them to have a service that does not provide people with rampant misinformation. That does sound hard. Like, they have not figured it out, right? Because like, one answer that they really don't want to do is hire a bunch of professional journalists and like have them knock stuff down. Because one thing they will rise is, well, if we do this or that conservatives will yell at us. So now they've constructed themselves a really hard problem. Like, how do you not do misinformation, but also not get yelled at by conservatives? As an experienced journalist myself, I can tell you this is an unsolvable problem, <laughs> right? Like, it, it can't be solved. You have to, like, bite the bullet on some level. Either sometimes conservatives will yell at you, or sometimes you'll run inaccurate stories, because that's, like, that's politics for you, man. And I'm not even saying anything particular about conservatives. I don't see how you could possibly have accurate editorial information without sometimes getting yelled at by liberals, or too. Or think about health. Right. Health, right. Like, I mean, you can take this out of politics entirely right. to try to have accurate information about health. Right. Like, know that crystal you're holding does not do anything good for you. You can't put this article up about this holistic treatment that has no evidence behind it. I mean, people get real mad about that. Right. But like we have at Vox and, you know, editorial cultures differ from place to place. But like every journalistic organization has a journalistic culture and an editorial value system and like a belief that like sometimes you're going to have to get yelled at in order to uphold like what you think is the right thing to do. I think we all wish that we could like get out of that bind and you could have something that like we both feel good about in terms of accuracy, but also literally everybody uses and nobody ever yells at us for. But like you can't do I it. I, and they're I, just like stuck in this in this realm of like not wanting to bite bullets, not wanting to suggest like maybe we should just hit pause on the whole news thing if we're not prepared to figure out how to make it work. It's like I mean, the slogan is like, we got to move fast and break things. But like, why? Why do you have to break human society? Well, and they've changed. They, I should say they have changed the slogan in the past couple of years. <laughs> but I do think one one thing lurking in all this is these firms think of themselves not as media companies, but tech companies. And they've been very, very invested in what I now think of as like this myth of open platforms, right? That they're just going to be an open platform. And that one way they can be so big is to not make any decisions. And so anybody can come on and it's a free market of ideas and the best stuff will rise from the top because people will, you know, press the like button or, you know, they'll, they'll get angry when they're lied to, you know, and it's just going to be, be an open platform. And I think what we're seeing is that you cannot be Arguably, it never was an open platform. That's number one. All this stuff had a lot baked into it. But you cannot 
wield the level of power, scale, and societal influence that they want to wield. With, which is again, it's governmental in its scale. Uh, you know, two billion people are on Facebook. It's bigger than any government in the world. Um, obviously, they, they don't pay taxes to it, but it's still a remarkable amount of people for whom it it interfaces in their lives in a very, very daily and, and significant way. You then begin having to make the kinds of decisions governments make, or that religions make, or that big civil society institutions make, and those decisions make people unhappy. And I do think that there is ultimately a trade-off. Like You can be an open platform, but not be quite so big and not be in quite so many spheres and dimensions of, of, of life. Right? I think Instagram, the way it is built, I think if Instagram hits 2 billion people, it is not going to have a lot of these problems even so, because it just it's not built to be central in politics, and it's not built to be, you know, to 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 take over news distribution. It's it's just it's much more narrow. And so they can continue just being what they are. They've limited what their platform does, and that allows a lot more scale without the scope and consequence of the decisions you need to make. Uh, expanding beyond your actual capacity to make them. But but Facebook and some of these other things, if they explode uh, down the road, like Twitter. They have to make the decisions that basically governments make, and they don't want to do that. They want to be open platforms, and they're still stuck between those two conceptions of themselves, the conception of institution connecting two billion people and changing the entire world, an institution that is open, and they're just creating a venue for people to to do some stuff on there, and you know, like hopefully everything works out okay. The, the, those two conceptions of themselves, I think, are currently under review, but but they do not have an answer for it. Who wants to join the Weeds Facebook group? <laughs> exactly. It's actually a good part of Facebook. My I, answer for you is, 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 to join, <laughs> is to join the Weeds Facebook group. No, where you will have meaningful interactions with other human beings. Time well spent. Instead of passively consuming <laughs> content. Even better, though, than joining the Weeds Facebook group is to go to people who you know in real life and say to them, do you subscribe to the Weeds podcast? I think, I think the thing to do here, I think the big lesson of all this is spend your time on social platforms. It, it, it just is good. It's going to make you unhappy. What you should do is you should go subscribe to the Ezra Klein show, um, where I had a great interview with Mitch Landry this week. You should go subscribe to Today Explained every day. That's like twenty minutes, and you get this amazing dive into an issue. You should go subscribe to Worldly, where you learn about the world, and, and it's credible, and it's thoughtful, and it's nuanced. You should go subscribe to I Think You're Interesting. Learn about culture. You're just going to be going to be happier and more well informed. Just get your headphones on, block the world out, wait for a new season of The Impact. Uh, try to try to keep doing what you're doing. Um, when Ezra's book comes out, maybe you should buy it. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll have to see. We'll see if it's good. We'll see what the title is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, this was a good good last raw weeds for a little while. I'm gonna miss you all. But uh, have a good book, Luz. Thank you. I will. Um, if you want to hear me in in your ears, uh, I will still be doing the Ezra Klein show, and I'll be listening to the weeds. Uh, twice a week, every week. Fantastic. So thanks to our sponsors. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, and we will be back on Friday.